Hello. Hey, John. How are you? Hi there, Dan Benjamin. What's up in your neck of the woods? Well, Dan, it's going to be 100 plus degrees what? in Seattle this weekend, and that is not cool. That's really hot for that area, isn't it? Yeah, we don't. That's not something we do. We're not into oh. that, and that's not what we do. And so everybody's freaking out. And I mean freaking out. Nobody knows what to do. <laughs> I, I've yeah, got a, uh, I, can, I can believe that. Yeah. I've got a longstanding policy. This is, this is a life hack. Okay. Where, uh, when it gets that hot, when it gets above 90 degrees in Seattle, sometimes I will go rent a hotel room because none of us have air conditioning. It's not part of, it's not in our homes or businesses really. And I'll just go get a hotel room. I'll close the blinds. I'll turn on the AC and I'll just lay in bed and watch sex in the city and I'll sleep 15 hours. And then, uh, hopefully the heat will break and it'll be over, but you're like, wait for it to pass, wait for it to pass. But yeah. this, this week, and you know, usually what that means is it's always going to be three hot days. And so you, you know, you endure one, maybe you endure two and then you, you know, the hotel is like the thing that you do at the, at the end. Yeah. But, um, this weekend, well, it's supposed to be. You know, it's supposed to be hot starting tomorrow and then for the foreseeable future. So I thought, I'll go out to the coast. I'll go out to Nia Bay. You know, I'll go out to Forks where the vampires are. Oh, sure. And uh, get a little hotel, look out over the water. It'll be cool out there. Um, but the problem is all the hotels on the Washington coast are run by people who live out on the Washington coast. And so I've been, I've called six hotels and the, the problem is no one answers the phone Oh, and their websites don't have, um, any functionality. Their websites are like one page that says we're a hotel on the Washington coast. <laughs> and so you call the number and it rings and rings and rings. And then you hear, you actually hear, a. Uh, uh, a physical answering machine pickup. You gotta be kidding me. They still have those. Hello. It's the inn at Nia Bay. No, please leave a message at the top. And it's just like, Oh my God, you're hotels. You're, you are hotels. There's no one there, but it's because the front desk clerk is also cleaning the rooms and is also running like a fishing guide. Oh yeah. Right. A uh, business. So, it's almost certain that there's not a single one of these places that has a room. I might have to go all the way down to Aberdeen, which, you know, nobody wants to stay in Aberdeen. Even those might be full. So I've got this life hack and everybody else's they've hacked the hack. So I don't know what I'm going to do, Dan. So what's, um, no, what was like the hot, the hottest, do you remember it being in? What part of Alaska were you? you were for you Anchorage? I keep forgetting this. Anchorage, but you know the 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 crazy thing about the interior of Anchorage is, and I'm I'm sorry, not Anchorage. Um, the the interior of Alaska is that the weather is extreme in both directions. So up in Fort Yukon, which is 
like crazy and Fort Yukon is where I worked on the, um, at the gold mine. Um, so it's, you know, way North of Fairbanks and in the winter it gets 80 below zero there. Um, or at least that's the lowest temperature. Oh my God. You know, the, the, the minus temperature <laughs> that is basically possible 80 below zero. That's like, that's cold enough that it's not only that you spit in the air and your spit freezes before it hits the ground. You can throw vodka in the air and it will freeze before it hits the ground. Ugh. Like, um, that when alcohol starts freezing, that's when you know you're in trouble. But in at Fort Yukon, it's also been a hundred degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. I mean, that's a the, minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit is, uh, is, uh, 211 degrees Kelvin. <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, I mean, I work in, um, I work in Kelvin, so I don't, you do. Yeah. That's how you, you manage your temperatures in Kelvin. Yeah. Like right now it's like 305 degrees out. Oh, wow. In Kelvin. Harsh toke, man. I know. Harsh toke. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do feel, you know, in Anchorage, it, it often got, uh, nice, you know, it was, it's nice in Alaska in the summer. It really is. It's wonderful. And it would get 80 degrees on a, on a fairly regular basis, but a hundred right. degrees is crazy. But in Seattle, as far as I know, in my entire life, I've never seen it go above a hundred degrees. I don't know if it ever has. Um, wow. And so it's talking about 105 degrees and that's bananas. Um, and I don't think anybody here is prepared for it. Like they closed my daughter's school in advance. Um, they sent out an email today that said, we're not equipped to, deal with that. Like, have they called, uh, like a state of emergency or anything? Yeah, no. Well, as far as I know, I mean, I'm not, uh, I don't spend very much time on the internet anymore, but, um, but I don't think anybody knows what to do. I mean, they, yeah. they they were, they were honest. They were like, we can't deal with 105 degrees. We don't want to kill your children. So, you know, head for the basement. A lot of houses in Seattle don't even have basements. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be terrible. And I don't know if I can't find a hotel out on the coast. I mean, you know, honestly, the more I think about it, people love these hotels on the coast mm -hmm. in summertime. It's the whole thing. All these places, I, I'm used to going out to Nia Bay in the dead of winter when nobody's there. And half the time the hotels have padlocks on them because who wants to go out there then? Yeah. But yeah, it's freaking the end of June. Of course these hotels are, of course they're not answering the phone. Why bother? Who could be calling Dan? Yeah. There's no vampire the hunters. They, yeah. Like it's when they, you know, up in the, the big ski resorts when like in the shining, when the roads are just closed and the lines are down and that's just the way it's going to be for a few months. Right. Nothing you can do about it. You just have to go with it. I'm noticing in looking these places up that, you know, the motels used to be um, basically like 
they would go to the home improvement store and they would buy garden sheds Hmm. and then they would put a window in them and then that would be a room that they would rent you. But now there's all these crazy, like huge Montana style log hotels with chandeliers made out of antlers. (laughs) So like the, it's been a long time since I've been out there, but it seems like times have changed. It seems like maybe it's gotten too, it's gotten discovered. That's what it is. It's gotten discovered. Right. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. People know about it now. Well, and I'm sitting here talking about it. It's just going to, just going to attract more people. Yeah. Who are like, huh, Neo Bay never considered going out there. Right. Oh, they got hotels with the antler chandeliers. Ooh, sounds nice. How's it going down there in Texas? Is it uh, still scorching hot? You're at 105 all the time, right? I mean, it, it gets up there. Um, you know, it's, let me see what it is. I'll tell you what it is right now. I used to have a little thing in the menu bar and I don't have it up there anymore. And uh, 92. 92, 92 degrees. So I think I said it was 305. I think it's probably, you know, 307 here. I love that, uh, that this has become a weather podcast. We're just talking about, yeah, talking I mean, about the weather, like a couple of old guys. Yeah, I was going to say, once you reach a certain age, everything's about the weather. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are and I don't like it one bit, <laughs> but it doesn't appear there's anywhere to run. I do think that out there on the coast, it'd be nice and it'd be nice and chill, but but now the more I think about it, I bet you even the campgrounds are full. Ha, do you camp, Dan? Have you ever been a you ever been a camper, tent camper? I have. I've done it a number of times. I haven't done it recently, and I've never done it in Texas. But it's well, something what, that that I think the main thing for me. I was actually talking to a friend of mine. Maybe this was yesterday, and she was saying that she she also drives a Ford F one fifty though, um, like similar to mine. And she was saying that she has one of those. I don't know if you. I'm sure you've seen this. It has like a uh, a tent that oh yeah expands over the bed, and then there's also like an air mattress that perfectly fits inside of the bed of the truck. And you kind of open you open the tailgate and. Uh, and that is sort of like your staging area for stuff. But then inside of the tent is basically all air mattress with just the tent over it. And I was thinking that would kind of be the perfect, like the perfect way to go. And, and, and just, I just feel like camping, let's just go throw stuff in the back and go. And the, your tent is, is your truck. Yeah. Those are very popular out here. I've never, I've never seen one in person. So I can only assume that they're cool. I guess they're pretty cool. Oh, you know, in, in, in Oregon, I mean, half the cars on the road have <laughs> some kind of tent on the roof Yeah, um, because we're all very, uh, outdoorsy here, everybody. And, but the problem is then you go and they're all going to those parking lot campgrounds where you're, you pull your cool truck in, but you're just parked right next to some other dope with a cool truck. Right. And, um, and your, your campfire and their campfire and. Then they pull out a boom box and they start playing Hotel California and you're like, why am I, I mean, I guess in Alaska and I hate to just always be taking it back to Alaska, but up there you legitimately can go find a place where there's nobody else. Mm. And if there are a bunch of people, you just keep driving until you get someplace where there's nobody. But I, 
I guess in the United States, see, I have a friend from Texas who said the other day that it's hard to camp in Texas because there are almost no public lands in Texas. All the land is owned by cowboys and ranchers and like, there's no, it's all private. Mm. So in order to camp in Texas, you have to, I don't know what, either, you know, either squat and risk getting shot or go up to the ranch and say, can I sleep on, on your back 40? But out here in the West, it's all public land. I mean, a lot of it, BLM land, national parks, state parks. So there's lots of places to go, but there are also lots of people now. All these people. We used to think that we wanted more people a long time ago. When I was a kid, we thought, you know, we'll have a world's fair. We'll, we'll attract people. Right. Come right, on. Sure. Come on out. And now uh, everybody up here is like, no, no more people. Everyone go home. Go back where you came from. That's what we say. Weren't, no, wasn't yeah, there a time period when you guys were giving out, like if you crossed in to the border, they would hand you like a pack of cigarettes, a stick of gum, and a, the, mm. like a revolver? Mm, and a, a, hat, a beanie with a propeller on yeah, top. Like a fez yeah, it was, or something it was like, like that. The, the welcome kit. <laughs> but now there's just a big sign. And we're not alone. Everybody in the Northwest is like, stay out. But you can't do that because there is no stay out anymore because it's not it's not that there are more people because they're coming from California and Arizona. It's that there are freaking more people, like just in general, more people. Um, and when I when I was a kid, what was the what was the population of the United States in nine? 1975. Let's find out. Let's just take a look here on the internet. There were 216 million people in America in 1975, and there are 328 million now. So fully 110 more million people from the time I was a kid till now. And they got to go somewhere. Where did, where did you put 110 million more people in the U.S.? Because they're sure shit not living in Nebraska and Kansas. Right. Uh, let's see what the population of Kansas was. I love the internet for this stuff. Because that's nobody is, that's nobody a, That's amazing. Nobody on these demographic websites is telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so here we go. 210. Or, I'm sorry, 2.2 million people in Kansas in 1975, and there are 2.9 million in Kansas now. So only uh, that's been an increase, really, of of only uh, seven million. Well, six million people have have joined the state of Kansas in a time when 110 million people have have. Uh, have uh, what, what would you say exploded? Yeah. What, what does a group of people do they when explode. they increase in population? They, they explode. Ex they explode. They they splooge into <laughs> America. <laughs> so I mean, even Kansas is growing, but but by significantly less. Anyway, well, wait a minute. I haven't even done the thing that I'm talking about. What was the population of Washington in 1975? It was it was. 
3.5 million people, so bigger than Kansas even then. But now, Dan, it's Mm. 7.5 million people. Kansas has grown by 600,000 people. We have doubled in size. That's crazy. More than doubled in size. But I mean, there's, you also have a lot of space up there. Do you think you have a lot less than, than Kansas has to offer? Well, but the space, you know, all the space, all the people want to live down in that tiny little slip of land between the water and the mountains. They don't want to, you can't just, you can't count over in, um, Ellensburg Mm -hmm. because where there's, there's nowhere anybody out there wants to live. You live in the middle of an apple orchard or live worse in a, in a coulee. Right. You can't live in a coulee. Or you wouldn't want to live in a coulee. Not even a grand coulee. <laughs> Especially not a grand coulee because you'd be 600 feet underwater. Sure. Well, now our podcast has turned into a demographics podcast. Yeah. Weather, demographics. I mean, this is what people, I think, come here for. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. About, about time to start talking about my medication. Yeah, right. Well, do you have any updates? Yeah, I do. Do you want to hear some medication updates? Yeah, because I think it's the last time that we talked about your medication. Lick, lick, lickmanol. Lick, lick, yeah, lickmanol. Lichtenstein. Lichtensteinmanol. Lick, lichthium. Mm-hmm. Lim, <laughs> That's pretty close, actually. Limtium. Yes, the last time we talked about that. What was that? That's know, the one that can fun. also give you a, um, you did not have the skin reaction, but it can give you a, a horrible, irreversible skin reaction that you have not had. Yeah, Lamictal. There, hey, how'd you figure I it just, out? It just came to me when I started thinking about the skin thing. Yeah, the skin thing is the bad thing. Um, well, no, so the, the, uh, the, the big excitement is, as, you, as I think you know, um, people have been very generously online, at, people that listen to the podcast, have been uh, diagnosing me with attention deficit disorder for a long time. Oh, really? And, you know, we typically, um, Merlin talks about his attention deficit disorder quite a bit. Yeah. Too, all and, the time. Uh, he loves it. It's his favorite, it's his favorite topic. It's like his it's thing. Big, it's a big topic. Yeah. And Merlin has, uh, has traditionally uh, treated his, uh, attention deficit disorder with uh, with stimulants, right? That's the that's the favorite technique of uh, of most prescribing doctors. You give somebody Ritalin, you give them Adderall, you give them these uh, these things that that paradoxically uh, they buzz you so fast that they kind of turn you around, and then all of a sudden you have all this focus. Right, like that, that's like an Adderall type situation, right? Yeah, the, well, that's that's Adderall. Yeah, that's one of the things. Um, and uh, it seems to me, at least, that it really changes your day depending on how where you are on the Adderall, uh, you know, bell curve, mm. and whether or not you're maybe taking one too many, or uh, certainly, I mean, if you crush it up and snort it, that's probably. <laughs> Is that is uh, that a thing people are doing also? I think that's an off an off book uh, use of Adderall. Okay, but 
as as uh you know because i was i was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder back when i was a kid mm. back when the definite when the uh when it was a brand new diagnosis and over the years plenty of doctors have have tested me for it and concluded that i had attention deficit disorder hyperactivity whatever and i always rejected the diagnosis just as i did the bipolar one because you know it just sounded like quackery uh and i think part of it was that all these all these maladies seem to be just newly invented or newly described or whatever but all the people on the internet that are saying oh you know you have this thing and it'd be it'd be helpful to you to have it treated and so forth and and i think contrasting uh me with Merlin, you would not see a ton of commonality if you said, oh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder manifests a certain way. Um, Merlin seems more, I guess, for lack of a better term, hyperactive than me. I'm sort of slow moving, slow talking. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you might not have the same situation or something similar going on. Right. I mean, the problem is that I can't finish anything. I get, I'm incredibly distracted by not only anything in the world, but also my mind. Mm. And, um, and I just can't seem to put, uh, you know, more than four blocks in a, in a row before I flame out. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I had run out of my lamictal, my bipolar medicine, and I had a new primary care doctor and she was not meeting my needs. And I hadn't been to see my psychiatrist in over two years. And I was out of medicine and I couldn't get a prescription. And I, because I'd been having my primary care doctor do it, and I had a new one because my old primary care doctor went and started heading up some weight loss clinic. Oh, that's a change. Or uh, not weight loss clinic. I should say a, uh, a weight, an eating and weight clinic Mm. at somewhere at the hospital where I used to see her. Uh, so I had to contact my psychiatrist, which I did somewhat reluctantly, but we had a zoom call. Mm Mm-hmm where we talked about things and, um, and at the end of the zoom call, he said, well, and I, and I talked about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And he said, well, we both agreed that I did not want to take any kind of stimulant because of my history with drugs. The idea of, I, I see this a lot that, that someone with a drug problem gets, goes to a doctor because they're experiencing anxiety as I was a couple of years ago, or they're experiencing some other thing. And the doctor says, Oh, well, you know, this is a time release drug. It shouldn't affect your, your, uh, recovery. And so it's perfectly safe to take Adderall because it's a medicine and, or it's perfectly acceptable to take, uh, this anxiety medication, which is basically 
a downer. Right. Uh, because it's a medicine and I'm a doctor. And then invariably the, the drug addict likes it and then takes two and then takes four and then starts crushing it up and then is on drugs. And I think, you know, I mean, uh, Chris Cornell was a, a guy who was in recovery and he didn't like to fly. And some doctor gave him a prescription for anti-anxiety medication, which was, you know, a benzo. Uh And he started taking two on those days when, you know, he had to fly and then he started taking four. Uh, so I said, you know, I don't want to take any, I was never a speed freak or anything, but I just don't want, because what happens is you get to the end of the day and you're, your antihistamine is wearing off, but you have a dinner party to go to, or you have a, you have a rock show to go to, you know, you're going to be up late and you think, well, you know what? The medication's wearing off. I'll just take one extra. Just for Get me through the night, just for tonight, the one time. Yeah, it's just the one time I'm just going to get through the night. You take it, and then you're vivacious at the cocktail party. (laughs) But you've, you know, you've gone through the door. You've taken more than the the one you were prescribed, and then you're going to do that again. For sure you are, and then pretty soon you're going to take two in the morning because, you know, you're already taking two. Why not take them together, and then? It's off to the races. So I said, I don't want any of that. And if there's no treatment for it, then so be it. But I'm not, I'm not going to take speed. And he said, you know, I wouldn't prescribe speed to you anyway, because you're taking this bipolar medicine and speed is going to throw you off, you know, just really for a loop. So he prescribed me this medicine called guanfacine. That's interesting. Guanfacine. Yeah. And so here I am. This is two days ago. I take a guanfacine, which is a terrible, terrible name. Yeah. And guanfacine. So the great thing about Lamictal, when he prescribed it to me, he said, we have no idea how this works. Hmm. We tried for a long time to make medicine that worked with bipolar and we were always screwing it up. It was always throwing somebody, you know, lithium or whatever. Uh, it, it did that thing that people always were afraid of, like dulled them or it you know, had all these side effects. And he said, we made Lamictal and by we, he means like the scientific pharma- medical com- pharma. Yes. The community yeah. as a whole. That's right. Psychopharmacologists. Um, this drug was developed for seizures. It's an anti-seizure medicine. Uh And then, you know, people that had severe seizures who also were bipolar reported that the medicine had this other effect. And pretty soon we realized, uh, this was incredible medicine for, uh, for a lot of people that treated their bipolar. And, he said, there's no explanation because bipolar, we do not, we do not think that it's related in any way to seizures. Totally different. And you know, what is it? It's a salt. It's some kind of 
it's just some basic chemistry and it goes in there and it washes around and somehow, you know, pastes over the, the, uh, malfunctioning receptor that caused you to, uh, you know, be, um, manic depressive. We would like to say thank you very much to feels. Do you experience stress? Do you have anxiety? chronic pain? Do you have trouble sleeping at least once a week? You're not alone. Many of us do. Personally, yeah, I think I've experienced all of those things, especially coronavirus time period. Who hasn't, right? And I was searching for anything that would help. And that's when I discovered Feels. What is Feels? I'll tell you. It is a premium CBD that is delivered directly to your doorstep. I've tried lots of other CBDs. This is my favorite one. What does it do? It naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. You just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and you'll feel the difference within minutes. Now, the thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is very important and everyone's dose is different. So we got to leave room to experiment over the course of a week or so. You may need to try taking more or less to get the effects that you're after. Now, if you're new to CBD, no problem. Feels has you covered. They've got a free CBD hotline that will help you guide your own personal experience you just call them a real person answers you tell them what you're thinking want to do and they tell you what to do it's great feels works naturally to help you feel better it's important to make a note of this it, there's no hangover there's no addiction it doesn't work like that it's just good stuff and i've been using cbd for a long time feels is my favorite you can join the feels community to get feels delivered to your door every month you'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time and Feels has me feeling my best every day. I think it can help you too. You can become a member by going to feels.com slash roadwork. You will get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's feels, F-E-A-L-S, feels.com slash roadwork. Become a member, 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Can't recommend this more highly. The only CBD for me. Go check it out. Thanks very much to Feels for making this show possible. So with the guanfacine, he says it's the same thing. We developed it as a low, as a blood pressure medicine. Um, people had high blood pressure, and we're always looking for ways to treat high blood pressure. So we worked on this medicine as a high blood pressure medicine, and it's a terrible high blood pressure medicine. Doesn't work at all, but it was discovered to work to treat ADHD. And all of these things they say in some people. But I was... Yeah, I mean, they have, very, to, they have to say that. Yeah. I, and I was very pleased with, and I still am, with the way that Lamictal works with me. Can so you I take... Said, can and, you do, are, wait, now they're saying you may have ADD or ADHD plus... The bipolar, or are they saying that that it's not really bipolar, that it's ADHD all along? No, I think that, well, and this is one of the things that makes me feel like, come on, come on, is this, can this all really be true? No, they're saying that ADHD and bipolar are completely separate uh, disorders that have completely separate causes, and you can have both, and you can treat one, and the other one runs rampant. And I could have treated my 
attention deficit disorder and it wouldn't have had any effect on the bipolar. Right. And, you know, standing here as a guy who's just kind of schlumping through life, you wonder exactly how carefully are we calibrated or how, what is the normal? If I have these and they're described as disorders, right? That means that there is an orderliness uh, that is not only well, that we would not only describe as normal, mm-hmm. but that that normality is achievable because we're not saying that these are high performance drugs. We're not saying we are going to optimize your performance. We're going to put you into another category of somebody that can catch a frisbee without looking. And somebody that can, you know, that can make a delicious white sauce with no lumps. And you can also do math in your head and get your work done and sleep eight hours a day and not lose your erection. And, you know, like we're not, nobody's saying that. They're saying that we're bringing you up to normal. And, you know, we're living now in a world where at least on the internet that I used to go, well, uh, the internet that I, that where I was once upon a time and a regular inhabitant. Yeah. Well, nobody's even using the word normal anymore. What's normal? There is no normal. Normal is normative. Normal, normal is, there is, you know, normal is not only we don't use it, it's bad because, you know, life is a, is a rainbow. But it's, this is one of the, uh, this is one of the hold two contradictory ideas in your hands at the same time. And Mm. it's like, if there's no normal, then what am I taking these medicines to do? What, why are these disorders? And if, if these aren't disorders, if we're not describing that, which we, we do describe them that way. If these are just part of a spectrum of consciousness. Right. They're all connected in some way. Then am I trying to, then are these high performance drugs? Am I trying to Uh. get, am I trying to get some perfect balance where all of a sudden I'm a ninja? (laughs) Uh And if that's true, then why am I not taking both speed and LSD? Because if I, if, if somebody said, all right, take a half a tab of LSD and one line of cocaine every six hours, I bet you I could get a lot done. I mean, I bet you I would be firing on all cylinders and I would be making cool art and I'd probably be very interesting on podcasts. Yeah. But you know, and then I'd say like, why not take a whole tab of LSD and two lines of Coke? And then honestly, I think I would sound like Merlin. And I, and I say that with love, but, but we're trying to, we're not trying to do that. We are not trying to make me a high performance, uh, cyborg. We're the whole premise of this medicine is that I have a imbalance that's treatable and that treatment is seeking to balance me. Well, does that mean I'm going to end up and the fear, the fear that artists always have is that you're going to end up like all the other dads at the swimming pool 
who are just standing around in their cargo shorts mm-hmm. talking about sport. Mm-hmm. And that's not what anybody wants. I mean, do you think that it's that simple that if you were to address the ADD that somehow you would revert to that form? I don't think that's possible. No, no, no. no. It's, it's not like, it's not. Um, what was that? When nine, was 1984, what was the drug that everyone was? Soma? Something like that? Everyone took it, just made them happy and sleep good. I don't remember. There's a drug that makes you happy and sleep good? Yeah, but it wasn't real. Oh, yeah. That's that's a problem, too. The drugs that aren't real. No, all I want to do, Dan, is be able to work on a project and see it through to completion. And when somebody says, which tile do you like, this green one or this other green one, that's imperceptibly different but definitely you can perceive it because you're a crazy person Uh i want to be able to say because the thing is i can pick the tile i like this tile better than that tile what i can't do is say so let's buy it right i say i like that tile better but are you should we buy it today or should we keep looking see if there's better tile see if there's a better deal i don't know if i'm ready to I don't know if I'm ready to commit to that today. Oh, it, by the way, a brave new world that they had Soma in, not 1984. Oh, it's not actually a thing. No, it wasn't real. I mean, unfortunately, it wasn't real. Yeah, well, and that's what, I, you know, all I need is a thing that makes me happy and sleep better and be able to complete projects. So the bipolar was incapacitating me, right? right. You I couldn't always, function. I you loved, couldn't function. I couldn't function. I loved the high times of bipolar. I loved them because I was, you know, I was the silver surfer. (laughs) I was screaming through outer space on my silver surfboard. It was just that the downer times got deeper and deeper and longer and longer until I was just like this. I just walked around. You know, I've never been suicidal. I never practiced like overt self-harm. It was just the kind of low grade self harm of like, you know, bad relationships and and bad food, but the but the comatoseness, the kind of just like listless inability to find any light or joy in life. Not even joy. I wasn't I wasn't seeking joy. I was just seeking like any feeling that, oh, that was a good sandwich, or. Hey, that was a fun conversation. Like I didn't, I couldn't even get to that. So that the medication worked. I do not, I'm still a, I'm still a pouty goth, (laughs) but I don't, I don't fail to, you know, to bask in the sun when it comes out. So now I want to do this other thing. Well, so what I'm trying to do is get to the normal of me. Right. What if you but are already is, in the normal of you? Right. What is the normal of me if I've never I been I feel in? like you're creating a new normal for yourself through this process. A new, a new normal. Well, let me ask you a question. Was there ever, was there a situation where like pre, because my, my under, limited understanding is that, um, is that the is it drug use and i don't know how much is required and i don't know what drugs this means but the drug use can affect the and 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 even and i know we're gonna get like the wrong kind of email 
like it can even potentially create situations where there's bipolar or something like that. Am I, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. I thought I read that, but that like once you have taken your mind frequently enough to those higher elevated places that later on it can't get itself there, quote unquote, normally, whatever normally would be. In other words, like you can feel happy, but you'll never feel as happy as you did that one time on the drug that gave you that feeling. And it's an actual physical thing, like your brain's receptors are changed or something. But I don't know. Is that Does that sound plausible? Is that something that lines up with your experience? Well, you know, I didn't start doing drugs until I was 17. So I'm not somebody that was doing drugs at 13. And I know a lot of people that did start doing drugs at younger than that. But, you know, regular drug users at 13, 14. I waited until I was 17. But, you know, your brain is still developing. It's in, it's in hot mode into your early, mid-20s. Yeah. And, and I definitely already... I mean, they were trying to figure out what the problem with me was uh, going all the way back. I think my the first time I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder was before the, the diagnosis even existed. They tried to give me Ritalin when oh. I was eight, nine, um, and, you know, I, I don't think... I'm not sure what they called it then, but they were trying to address my dysfunction when I was young. And at that time I was, you know, all the way through school, if you were measuring children based on standardized tests, you would have had no problem with me, right? I was in the 99th percentile of all uh, of everything that they tested you for until, you know, ninth or 10th grade where the math score started to sort of taper a little bit. And I was in the, you know, the low nineties in math, but I was still in the other, in everything that wasn't math you know, just right up on the line on the, and you know, I was a national merit scholar. Like if you went by standardized testing, I was a fine kid, but they did not go on that. They went on all the other things. Can you complete a project? Can you stay focused in class? Can you not be disruptive? Can you not be, um, what they would have at the time called a spaz? <laughs> and and did call me that but not but i wasn't you know i i wasn't i was never a kid that was just completely freaking out out of control right i was crafty i had guile i was working adults i was working kids i was i was trying to control my environment by um you know, like emotionally manipulating grownups. And so I was, I was twice as disruptive 
or 10 times as disruptive as a kid that was, that just couldn't sit still because I couldn't sit still, but I also was like, not going to just, I wasn't just spraying spittle. You know, I was over like taking the, the sockets out of the wall. And so when it was discovered what I was doing, it was like, holy, you know, you, you're unsafe at any speed. So by the time I started taking drugs, real drugs, um, there wasn't any question that, that I had long ago left, um, normal functioning behind. And a lot of the psychiatrists I saw as a young person, and by that, I mean, in my twenties did that thing that we still, we still talk this way. We say they, you know, you, you're self-medicating, you're taking these drugs because you have these other disorders and you don't know how to deal with it. You you have a you have this emotional damage and you're trying to manage it with pot and acid and beer, largely beer. And because what else are you going to do? What other what coping techniques do? do you have at that point? None. Yeah. Well, and also violence, you know, and, and mostly violence against myself, but not suicidal violence. Like, um, like daredevil risk taking violence, like watch me hold my beer. I was the ultimate hold my beer guy. Like, (laughs) Oh, you, you know, you can jump a bicycle over that. Watch me. I don't even have a bicycle, you know, I, but I'm going to borrow your bicycle and I'm going to try and jump that thing. And, and, you know, but you're a hundred pounds lighter than me and you have practiced and I'm going to try it anyway. And then, you know, crash. Right. And that was, that was also a way of treating or of dealing with my emotion. Right. And you know, and that all makes sense. You hear it said and you go, Oh yeah, right. Self-medicating. Um, now I know people who, uh, who were forever changed in their mind by drugs. I knew them before they started to, and then a lot of this is hallucinogens. And then there was a, and then there was a break. Their mind broke. Oh yeah. You told me about the one guy that, that had that break. Yeah. But I've known, I've known other people that didn't have, that did not become psychotic, but, but the, the drugs, changed them and but i've also known people that have done herculean quantities of every (laughs) drug you could in every admixture possible and if they were you know if they were on this podcast right now they would just be as as normal as the day is long because they they're either off drugs or they've always coped. You know, they're mm. the ones that sat in the chair just as tweaked as the rest of us, but they were not combing the carpet for the crack that they didn't actually drop, but thought maybe they had dropped. No, they were just sitting in the chair and sitting in the chair and laughing and going, you guys didn't drop, drop anything on the carpet. Get the fuck up. So did it affect me? No, I think it changed my views. But 
I don't think it deadened me and I don't think it altered me. I mean, it, it, it altered me the way any profound experience would, but not, not chemically. It didn't, it didn't send me into a thing, but it does contribute to my overall self image and story as someone that, um, someone that's borderline loser. I was never a dirtbag, but you know, borderline loser, like the, like a rich kid that never does anything except not rich enough to, right. to, you know, to inherit daddy's business anyway. A rich, rich enough that, um, that I never had a Camaro, but not so rich that I don't have to work. And that self-image as a loser or a borderline loser is really connected to the fact that I had a lot of peers growing up who were normal, who did their schoolwork, got good grades, brushed their teeth, went to college, got jobs out of college that were professional and and so, and these were my peers and I was never able to do any of those things. And somehow, you know, we're occupying the exact same space and time. We're, we're riding around in, in Eric's dad's Caprice classic. It's just that of the six of us, only one of us is a, is a, is going to go to school in the, in the morning and be in big trouble. Mm. The, the moment he walked in, you know, you're, I'm in pre trouble and suffering all the, the shame of that and the stress. I think if anything, it's stress that affected my brain chemistry more than drugs. Really? Yeah. Just, I mean, I've been bathing in stress since I was in, I guess fourth grade is when, when stress came into my life. When I just, when I was failing to meet people's expectation and I couldn't tell you why. And they were trying really hard to figure out why and what that meant was, you know, in this culture, we love to try and correct our problems by taking it out on kids. And by take, taking it out, I mean, trying to change kids. We're going to change kids by changing school, changing what we teach them. And we're doing that not because there's anything wrong with kids, not because kids, not because human beings come into the world already racist, or if they do, that's a different thing. That's a different problem to solve than just changing your curriculum. But we live in a racist world. All the grownups, you know, are suffering or we perceive uh, institutionalized racism. So what are we going to do? We're not really having very much success, uh, success changing adults. So we're going to go down to the six year olds who are innocent and see 
really don't don't see racial distinctions between one another and we're going to get in there and we're going to fuck with their little heads and we're going to tell them that they're racist and we're going to tell them that they can't be racist like you didn't know you were racist but you are and you can't be and here's why and here's why you know and and then the kids are like what the fuck did i do and meanwhile we absolve ourselves of confronting our own racism or of dealing with it systemically as grown-ups, we just fuck with kids and they fucked with me from the beginning. And, you know, and th- cause they're not capable of saying like, well, the schools are messed up right? or a kid like this belongs somewhere else is what is, what w- is the truth. You know, you've got all these other kids and they're all fine. This kid belongs somewhere else. And the problem is there is no somewhere else. We don't have a somewhere else and you create gifted programs and you populate gifted programs with this hodgepodge of kids. Like some of them are just good at math. That's all they are. And they're really good at math. And so they're in there, you know, they're in the gifted program with me and I'm not going to be a math person. I'm fine. at or I'm good at math, but I'm not. I mean, you know, because the tests only measure so much. It's like, oh, 99th percentile. Well, here, you belong with this kid that can do differential equations when he's nine years old. And it's like, no, I don't. <laughs> no. And he doesn't want to play with me either because he doesn't want to play imaginative games. He doesn't want to play stories, play stories or live in, inhabit stories. Like, he doesn't even know what that is. And then you've got kids in the gifted program that are not gifted at all, but their parents want their kids to be called gifted. And so they intervene, you know, an intervening parent can basically get their kid put anywhere because the schools are, you know, the administrators are overburdened. And so you get one of those parents that's like, I think the test is blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon you got a kid that's just got, pushy parents and he's in the gifted program and you're like, Oh, you're kind of a drag, you know? So a gifted program is nothing. It's, you know, I didn't need to be in a gifted program. I needed to frankly go build trail. They didn't need to teach me to read. They didn't need to teach me social studies. Like I was going to learn that stuff. Um, they needed to teach me how to, how to canoe or how to, I mean, really the stuff that was the hardest for me was like, was that summer camp stuff, how to, how to put up a tent, but we, but we're not capable of that. So, you know, they, so what they did was they belted me to a chair and told me I was a racist <laughs> or <laughs> belted me to a chair and told me that I was, you know, that there was something wrong with me because I couldn't sit still and, and I memorized all the bones in the body in a, over a weekend. And that was just like, no, that's not how it's going to take you a month to do this. And I was like, well, so what am I supposed to do for the, for the remaining three and a half weeks? So here I am and I'm taking this new drug I'm two days into it. What's it called again? Guano? 
Guano. Yeah, it's guano. Guano. <laughs> they're basically giving me uh they're giving me penguin shit. Delicious. <laughs> delicious uh you know the, the they they go out to where the puffins roost and they scrape their poop off the rocks. No, it's called guanfacine. Guanfacine. And what the what the doctor said is guanfacine is an alpha blocker blocker. Uh, it's they have no idea what they're talking about and they and they're and they're they admit it they're like we don't know what it does we don't know what it does we couldn't duplicate it it just it's just like licking a toad in the rainforest um we discovered that the that the people that lived around these toads would lick them and uh and it you know and that's how they ran their government and so guanfacine apparently blocks the alpha blockers and it's the alpha blockers that are block and it's the alphas that are helping you have executive function and regulate your, you know, make lists and regulate your thoughts. And I've got too many blockers. So this is blocking the blockers. I see. I, I may be, I may be making that up, Dan. Because I may have, I may also have a disorder where I imagine conversations with psychiatrists. Right. Right. Like you may actually have never even been to a psychiatrist before. It might be. I might, <laughs> I might not even be taking guanfacine. Right. That's right. That might not even exist. It might not exist. It's That's like exactly in right. um, A Beautiful Mind where he imagines the implant in his arm and it's not really there, among other things. Yeah. Yeah. I, the thing is, I do have high blood pressure. And I'm already taking a couple of high blood pressure medicines. So right. guanfacine, which is a bad high blood pressure medicine, I think when it's when they say it's bad, they just mean it's not it effective. Only, yeah, it only lowers it a little bit or something. But maybe because the blood pressure medicines I do take only get me down to right below the line, mm -hmm. where they're like, "Well, you know, looks like we got it under control." And I'm like, "Wow, are you sure? I'm still 116 over 89." And they're like, well, that's on the, that sounds pretty good to us because you used to be 140 over 110. And I think that's the, I think the blood pressure is probably a result of the stress that I've lived in, directly, that I've bathed in. directly connected. I mean. Yeah. Cause I've, all I've ever known as a, as an adult, as from a teenager to adulthood has been a feeling of constant stress. And I feel as someone who is under constant stress that I deal with it pretty well, uh, because I internalize it and it has just, it's been a jackhammer on my soul, mm. but I don't take out that stress too much on other people. I guess I do actually. I'm pretty irritable. I try not to be mean, you know, but it's not easy. It's not easy because mean, you know, so many people deserve meanness, but you know, I've get it, it. I know it about myself that if I get into a confrontation with somebody in the world, mm -hmm. I'm going to feel that stress so intensely, you know, it's like the reservoirs of stress all open up all the, and, all the stress that's been living inside of you at this point has to come out. It's like that. It's like the little, you know, you have your fingers in the dam. 
and you take a couple out, it's all over. It's all over. I, you know, it pours out of me because I feel, you know, I feel any kind of criticism or confrontation, I react to it as though I am really being attacked by, by someone who's dangerous. And that's not always the case. It's, you know, a lot of times it's just somebody that's like calling something to my attention or, or in a, just a regular confrontation that you might have with somebody, but controlling my reaction to it, controlling my reaction to being, uh, to being confronted. I mean, this is why, this is one of the major benefits of me being off social media because I would bobble along on social media just as happy as a little clam and then someone would say something that I interpreted as confrontational. A lot of times it's just somebody that's just either trying to joke or uh, just didn't calibrate their words or was legitimately being confrontational. But I would feel that, you know, that red rage well up in me at the at the temerity, the gall that some stranger would have to correct my thinking, to offer a corrective to something I said in 140 characters. Mm-hmm. And I would turn my cannons on them and just blast them out of the water. And a lot of times, you know, people, they'd reply like, I'm sorry, I was just trying to be funny or, you know, I didn't mean to, I'm a big fan, I didn't mean to. And I would have, you know, I would have spent five tweets just, just, uh, just laying waste to them. And then I would, the smoke would clear and I'd be like, oh, sorry, I thought that you were saying something else. But, you know, the, the things that I said, the damage that I did, intense. Because that, that feeling of being attacked, mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen this in a lot of people and, and in a lot of, a lot of big guys, but also there are a lot of people in the world that don't recognize their power when they are, when they feel cornered and they see themselves as, as a victim of the circumstance. And so that justifies their outside outsized reaction. And to the rest of the world, they don't seem like a victim at all, or they don't seem like they're being like they're in any jeopardy. You know, I'm, I'm big and ferocious and articulate. So there's no way that I'm pushed into a corner where, where me being where, where, but, but internally I feel like I am under siege. I'm a small person that's being ridiculed or, or, um, you know, I, I feel the threat intensely. And so I don't see how, how crazy I look, how mm-hmm. scary I am because I'm responding to what I think is a, a like a existential threat. Right. And it's only when I see it in other people and I go, wow, you're like, you're really scary right now and see the person's confusion and they're, and they're feeling like, why, what do you mean I'm scary? Like you're the one that's attacking me. 
it's like, well, yeah, but you're really big and you're being, you're like pounding the wall and it's, it's an outsized reaction because all I asked you to do was clean the blender and you're, you know, and you're punching the wall like that's nuts. But then you think you, you try and get inside them and you realize, oh, they, you know, they feel like you asking them to clean the blender is really an indictment of their character. And they don't see themselves, they don't see that punching of the wall as being dangerous, uh, you know, feeling really dangerous to everybody else in the room because they're, you know, they have an infantile response and I'm not a wall puncher, but I am a, you know, like a acidic, you know, verbal, um, not even jouster, but like, I know where people's vulnerabilities are. If there's a, if there is extrasensory perception, one of the things that I have is that I can look you up and down, talk to you for five minutes and know exactly what your greatest fear is. Mm. And when I was young, when I was a teenager and really felt threatened by other, other people, I exploited that ability. And it made me awful because, you know, I didn't use it until I felt cornered, but where do you feel cornered the most? I mean, it was, it was great when I got picked on because it, you know, I was a bully destroyer and there's nothing better than being in a, in the middle of a high school hallway and some bully decides they're going to pick a fight with me and and just using verbal repost, you know, I just, they, they splatter their emotional blood on the walls. Right. And they limp away and they're, they never bully me again. And, you know, and all the other kids in the hall all laugh. And it's just exactly what you would hope to do against a bully. But it's a terrible skill to employ against your friends when when you feel left out or when you feel you know, like mildly ribbed or just that usual high school stuff. And I didn't have control over that power. So I used it wantonly. And I think, you know, just, I can't even say it was unintentional, intentionally hurt people that, that didn't deserve it. And I wrestled some control over that and I hold my tongue and I don't, when I see somebody's greatest fear now, I, I have empathy and I, I think I employ that knowledge in the service of good. I try to get to know them better. I try to say things that I think will assuage that fear, at least in their interactions with me. I compliment people for things that I see their self-conscious about mm-hmm. say so like, wow, you know, that's, that was really good. What you just said, or, you know, you really, you really wowed them. And, you know, I'm trying to help instead of saying, instead of, you know, turning that into a, a bad thing, unless I'm, unless I feel cornered and then I, 
I still have a I still have control over that power, but in in service of of destruction. That's awful. Yeah. Because you don't encounter that many bullies in life. Right. And honestly, you know, I, I feel like in the course of my life, I walk a path where if I get off that path in one direction, you know, I'm dangerously close to being a bully. Because I can get what I want by by pushing people down hmm. if I use that. Again, a thing that, you know, it, it, that, I mean, we all have gifts and we all see things differently. And a lot of people have zero intuition about other people or zero interest in them. And I have tremendous interest in other people and a lot of intuition. And it was why as a kid I was able to manipulate adults because I could see what was motivating adults and they couldn't see what was motivating me. So I could tell them things that I, you know, I could, I could easily discern what they wanted and what they hoped and, you know, what they wanted was they all wanted to be the heroes. They wanted to be the grown up that helped this troubled kid. They wanted to employ their education in child psychology or in education pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I knew that and I could see what they were getting, what they were going for. And I knew what it sounded like if it had, you know, I, it never sounds like they want in reality. Most of the time when you impact a kid, they just kind of stare off. Mm-hmm. But I would say, oh, wow, I've never really thought about it that way. That's really, thank you. I think from now on I won't have that problem anymore and I'll be, you know, like I, I really feel like today really changed me, you know, and they're just, I mean, I wasn't that devious, but, you know, they pat down their, their jacket and go, my work here is done. And mm-hmm. then as soon as they turned their backs, I was standing on the desk with a knife in my teeth. 